And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know this. Certainly, if anyone, looking back on their life, could make that point, make that point very strongly, especially in the Old Testament, it would be Joseph. Just as we were reminded by Brother Eric so beautifully this past Wednesday night. At 17 years old, his own brothers both envied and even hated him. Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. And by the way, if you want to be turning to Genesis 37, we're going to read a few verses out of that as we continue. But again, his own brothers at 17 envied and hated him. His own brothers hated him so much, they couldn't even speak peaceably or kindly to him, according to verse 4 of Genesis 37. He had a dream, a dream that was an obvious, an apparent prophetic message from God. And when he told his brothers, it says in verse 5, they hated him even more. This poor kid can't win, right? And when he told them the dream in verse 8, it says, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And why not? I mean, look at the dream here in verses 6 and 7 of Genesis 37. So he said to them, that is, Joseph said to his brothers, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field, and then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. <laughs> you can kind of see why they had a small issue with Joseph's dream. It might have seemed like at the time, especially to them, that Joseph was pretty arrogant when you really stop and think about it. Even though the words that he told them in verse 8 been from God. In verses 9 and 10, we have the detailed account of a, a second, very similar dream and prophetic message from God, which Joseph also told his family, with pretty much the same result, verse 11. And so, his own brothers conspired against him, hated him so much, that they conspired against him and sought to get rid of him, which they did, verses 12 to 24. They were successful, selling him into the hands of Ishmaelite slave traders traveling to Egypt and causing their father untold agony, verses 25 through 35. As we move over to Genesis chapter 39, and I'd ask you to go there with me, we see that Joseph was sold as a slave to Potiphar. Verses 1 through 4 tell us, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of the guard, an, I'm sorry, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, 
bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, it probably didn't seem to Joseph at the time when his brothers put him in a pit and then they sell him and he's bought as a slave. It might not have seemed exactly in all of those circumstances to Joseph like God was with him at the time. But the Bible says the Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man. He was successful because God was with him. And God was with him because he was with God. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. Pretty obvious when the Lord's with you to a lot of people, even if they're not of the same faith. And that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. And he made him overseer of his house. And all that he had, he put under Joseph's authority. Despite... And I know we all know the story well, but, but stay with me. There's a point here. Despite everything that his brothers had done to him, Joseph still loved and obeyed the Lord. And because he did, the Lord was with him and blessed him. We see this same pattern later on when Joseph was thrown into prison for a crime he did not commit. We would notice this in Genesis 39, beginning at verse 20. He's thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit because he had honored and obeyed God instead of giving in to lust and sin. Verse 20, then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. Now, he's not in good circumstance here, and it may have seemed at the time, you know, so much easier for us to look back and say, well, God was with him. Well, good. But what if it was you in that circumstance at that point in time? Not everything was terrific. He was thrown in prison. Prisons then weren't like prisons are today. And there he was in the prison. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. We keep seeing this phrase. And showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Keeper of the prison didn't even worry about it, didn't even question Joseph about it. If Joseph did it, it was all right because the Lord was with him and it was pretty obvious. Eventually, because Joseph loved and trusted and obeyed God, no matter what the people around him did, no matter what the circumstances he found himself in, by God's power and providence, as we all know, Joseph eventually arose to second in command, only to Pharaoh himself in all of Egypt. Chapter 41, beginning at verse 39. Please turn there and take a look at this. 41, 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And that's incredible. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck, and 
he had him ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried out before him, bowed the knee, so he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his head or foot in all the land of Egypt. Isn't that incredible? He said, nobody can even lift their head without your approval, Joseph. That's, that's how incredibly blessed that Joseph eventually became. And Joseph's response, when the providence, just as Eric mentioned, when the providence of God finally brought Joseph's brothers who had sought and plotted and schemed and sought to get rid of him, to have to come face to face with what they had done, Joseph's response is priceless. Joseph's response is the, one of the most beautiful, one of the most powerful, one of the most incredible responses in all of the Bible. It's one of my favorite verses, not only in just the Old Testament, but in the entire scripture, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. I love this passage. It goes right along with Romans 8, 28. After all they had done to him, look what it says, Genesis 50 and verse 20. But as for you, Joseph says to his brothers, when they have to come face to face with what they did to him, but as for you, you meant evil against me. He said, your desire was to hurt me, and then some. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. He said, God had a plan all along, and even though you intended to hurt me, even though you intended to bring this evil upon me, he said, God had a plan to bring out of that Good. That's the reason that you're being able to be fed today. It's the reason you're going to survive. God worked all of this out. God had a plan. Joseph, looking back on his life, surely could have seen the hand of God revealed in every step. Consider quickly a recap. For simply sharing what God had shown him, his brothers envied, hated, and sought to get rid of him. When they succeeded in doing that, God blessed Joseph by raising him up over Potiphar's entire household. When Potiphar's wife succeeded in getting Joseph thrown into prison, God blessed Joseph by raising him up over the entire prison. And when Joseph finally comes before Pharaoh, God succeeds in blessing Joseph and having him raised up over the entire nation of Egypt. Which God then used to bring about the very blessing that he had told Joseph about in his dream way back in Genesis 37. In God awesome, we serve an awesome God. Joseph, yes, he knew beforehand the incredible power and providence of Almighty God. How no matter what his brothers, his masters, his master's wife, his fellow prisoners, or even mighty Pharaoh himself might have had in mind, might have wanted to purpose for him. It was God himself, and only God himself, who would inevitably, 
work out his incredible will for Joseph's life. To bless Joseph, to, to just have him raised to these levels and see so much good come out of his life that, that it's hard almost to imagine even reading about it later on. He blessed Joseph because Joseph simply trusted and obeyed and continued to honor God no matter what anybody else threw at him, no matter what anybody else did to him, no matter the circumstances and how dark and dreary and bleak they were that he was walking through. It didn't matter. Joseph honored and obeyed God, and because he did, God was with him and gave him success, period. The words of Genesis 50 in verse 20 tell us what an awesome, powerful, and incredible God and life, and life, those people have who will trust God and his word and his providence no matter what or who they are up against. And you know, certainly Joseph is not the only one of God's faithful people who knew and told of God's complete faithfulness in the worst of their circumstances. We can see similar throughout the scriptures. And I want to mention several, to, several of them to you in rapid succession. Surely Joseph would have agreed completely with the words, the absolute lockdown, take it to the grave words and truth that Asaph wrote in Psalm 73 when he said, truly God is good too, such as are pure in heart. I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Asaph continues, who have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph says, surely Joseph would have agreed with that. Asaph concludes, it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all his works or all your works. Surely Joseph, looking back on his life, would have agreed completely with the divinely inspired words of King David, the man after God's own heart, as recorded in Psalm 142. And I'm going to ask you to turn over there. Psalm 142. Joseph, and it's, you know, no wonder, because all of this is divinely inspired from God. Same, same author, different men. But Psalm 142, I want you to look at how closely Joseph's life resembled this or, or could have resembled some of these circumstances. And surely he would have agreed with David when David wrote in Psalm 142, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. David said, I am just, I have got to pour this out before God. David was in dire straits. He says in verse 3, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you felt overwhelmed? 
where he just felt, Lord, I, I am so overwhelmed, this is crushing me. Spiritually, you may have been overwhelmed. David said, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. David said, God, even when I was completely overwhelmed, you knew where I was. You not only knew where I was, you knew where I was going. That's awesome. What an incredible God. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. David is saying to God, look, they set a snare for me secretly, but, but you already knew. You knew where I was and where I was going. Even when I was so overwhelmed, you, you were right there for me, God. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me, verse 4. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. You ever felt like that? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Here I am hurting. Here I am overwhelmed. Here I am being, and nobody cares. David felt that. So what did he do? Verse 5, he said, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge. My portion in the land of the living, attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may declare, that I may praise your name. But look at, look at what David never lost sight of. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. David, despite all of his distress, knew that God was going to bless him. He knew that God was going to take care of him, even when nobody else seemed to care, even when he was overwhelmed. Surely, Joseph would have agreed with how bountifully God deals with us, even when we can't see him moving through the darkness that surrounds us. Surely, Joseph would have agreed with the divinely inspired wisdom of David's son, King Solomon, in Proverbs 19.21, when Solomon wrote, according to the English Standard Version, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. It didn't matter what anybody purposed, be it his own brothers, be it Potiphar, be it Potiphar's wife, it, it didn't matter in the life of, life of Joseph. God's purpose stood, is that right? With Joseph, did God's purpose stand despite all of their plotting and scheming? Absolutely. Surely, Joseph would have agreed with the reinforcing revelation of the eternal character of Almighty God, which Jeremiah stated in Jeremiah 29, 11, when he said, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and, and, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Joseph had a future and a hope no matter which one of those dark circumstances he was in. Certainly Joseph would have agreed with the all-encompassing, the, the everlasting and, and ever-encouraging statement of the Apostle Paul when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Surely Joseph would have agreed with that statement. And finally, one of my personal favorites, one of my personally favorite providential truths in the entire Bible Surely Joseph would have agreed 
Paul writing to the Church of Christ in first century Rome in Romans chapter 8 where Paul said, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Yes, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In all these things, we are, we are, present tense, more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8, verses 28, 31, and 37. I have a question for you. Have you ever stopped to consider just how many times in Scripture we see that incredible truth of Romans 8 and God causing all things to work together for good and how we're more than conquerors and all these things. Have you ever stopped to consider how many times we see that truth played out in the Bible? How during even the darkest and most desperate of times that people went through, and even especially during those times, we see that for those who continue to trust God, hang on to God, obey God, he always works things out to their good. Have you ever noticed how many times that happens in the Bible? We see it played out in the lives of many. We could be here a long time. If y'all don't want lunch, I can throw them all. Actually, I can't because I don't have them all written down, but I want to share a few with you. Think of how many times that truth is played out in the Bible. We see a terrible loss of family, fortune, and health in the book of Job. Even his own wife and his best friends couldn't be counted on to counsel him. They couldn't. We know that. How many times, I wonder, we look at the terrible stuff that Job went through, and surely Job could not know the answer to this question. We can't even know the answer to this question looking back in retrospect. But how many times has the book of Job encouraged somebody who felt like they were just at the end of their wits? How many times has the book of Job been used, not just over the past 2,000 years, but in Old Testament times, they had, they had, you know, they had the, the scriptures there. How many times since it was written has the book of Job been used to pull somebody back to God who'd lost everything, who were on their last legs, whose faith was faltering. And we know Job personally was better off in the end than in the beginning, Job 42, 10 through 17. We know, looking at that story, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What about when, when it seems like all is lost and, and it looks like the enemy forces are going to completely annihilate God's people? Like, for example, the Israelites. They got their back up against the Red Sea. I, I want you to understand that as their back is up against the Red Sea, that is what's going to probably wind up destroying them. Yes, Pharaoh's army is going to destroy them, but the point is they got no place to run. They got no place to go. Their back is up against the Red Sea, and, and, and it's the worst possible thing when they see Pharaoh coming over the hills, and they see this army coming for, for them. No wonder they're terrified. Their back's up against the Red Sea. They can't outswim them. What are they going to do? 
the very worst thing, the Red Sea, that impenetrable, impenetrable barrier, the very worst thing in that story, or maybe second worst if you count Pharaoh's army, but the thing that was going to hinder them from doing anything, from going anywhere, what did God do to that? He took the very worst and made it the very best, made it their way of escape. Did he not provide a way of escape? Sure he did. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Even the Red Sea, even the worst, God used it to bring about good. What about when an inoperable, incurable illness occurred in a beloved friend of Jesus? What about when Mary and Martha in John 11 went through all of that agony as they watched their brother Lazarus die? But you know what? Even as we read through that, as, as awful as that must have been on, on those two sisters and the friends of the family, even as awful as that must have been, as we read through that, we see that, that there's, a, there's a plan. God's working there. You remember when Jesus heard about it, he waited two more days just to make sure that you know, Lazarus was good and dead, as it were? Why? So that he could prove that he didn't just help somebody that was sick. So he could prove his power even over death itself, the most formidable foe. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God those who are called according to his purpose. Perhaps one of the greatest examples, what about this? What about, consider your faith for a minute, okay? Everything you believe in. What about when everything that you have believed in, set your entire hope on, comes to an absolute screeching halt? What about when everything you have set your hope on dies the most horrible of deaths and leaves you with nothing but an empty, aching, bone-chilling discouragement, a discouragement that just makes you want to curl up and die? That's exactly what the apostles went through as they watched Jesus die that Friday morning for three and a half years. They had left home. They had left family. They had put all of their hopes in Jesus. Peter said, I'll follow you anywhere. Even if, they, even if all of them desert you, I won't desert you. They were, they were ready. They'd followed him for three and a half years. And that morning, they saw him die. It's all gone. What do you do with that? Not looking back at it from our perspective, but what do you do with that when you're the one in the middle of it? What do you do with that? Be easy to say during that time, wouldn't it? Where's God? Where's God? Was, was, was everything I believed in a lie? He promised the kingdom and he's dead. You might cry out, is this ever going to end? Is this nightmare ever going to end? But, but here's the thing, brethren, here's the good news, here's the awesome news, here's the blow your mind news. Listen, 
If you're glad that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead to wash you from your sins, raise your hand. And if you're sitting here in this room and your hand is not raised, you and I need to talk after services. That goes for you at home too. Okay, listen. The greatest news that there's ever been is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, amen? He died for our sins, and on the third day, he arose according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, three and four, right? Here's the thing. Was God working even that Friday morning when the worst of things happened? Was God in the middle of that working? Boy, was he ever. Because you see, Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead unless he died first. That makes sense, right? Jesus couldn't have been resurrected and show his power over death until he first died. And he couldn't have proven that he was the Christ according to the Old Testament scriptures unless he had truly died and he had been in the tomb just as he said. Jesus tried to tell them on several occasions so that when it happened, it wouldn't surprise them or defeat them. Brethren, how many times has God told us in the Bible, don't fear, I'm with you. All things work together for good, trust me. I'm not gonna leave you or forsake you. How many times God told us that in the Bible? You know, we look at the apostles and, and Jesus had tried to tell them, I'm, I'm going up to Jerusalem and I'm gonna be arrested and beaten and scourged and, and they're gonna kill me and I'll rise the third day. They didn't get it. So he tells them again, they didn't get it. When it happens, they're stunned. Why? Because they didn't get it when he told them. How much grief could they have saved themselves if they had understood it when he told them, if they'd accepted it? How much grief can we save ourselves if we understand that God that all things work together for good, even the worst of things, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If when we go through our dark valleys that we had that right in front of us, do you suppose it would help us? You think? Jesus has tried to tell us that so many times. As dark and desperate and terrifying of a time as Christ's disciples, his apostles went through while he was hanging on that cross and, they, and he died. And, and, and that Sabbath must have been the bleakest of all Sabbaths for them. Into Sunday morning when the women went to the tomb. But you know, as dark and desperate and horrible and terrifying of a time as Christ's death was for his disciples, you know what that was? God at work, working hard to work out his perfect will so that you and I could be saved. That's biblical. Acts chapter two, verses 22 through 24. He was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. As dark as it was for those in the middle of it, aren't you glad that Jesus was resurrected? But he couldn't have been resurrected unless he died first. God was working all the way through that, even if they couldn't see it. We see a similar situation in Acts eight where According to verse four, great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, <clears throat> I am sure that for those saints who were caught up in the middle of that persecution, those saints who had to basically leave their homes, 
leave the territory they were familiar with, basically run for their lives because of this great persecution, a persecution which involved one of their church leaders being martyred, Stephen from Acts 7, beginning into Acts 8. How, what would you do with this? Okay, let's just stop a minute, okay? You're, you're from Shoto, we'll say. I know some of you here aren't living in town Shoto, but okay. You're in Shoto. You live in Shoto. Remember, the Shoto Hills Church of Christ. And all of a sudden, for standing up for the truth, one of your elders or deacons or your preacher is murdered. And if you don't want to be, you have to flee for your life. You have to get out of Shoto. You got to understand, that's what happened, okay? And so I'm sure that for those people, it didn't seem like the best of times. Probably seemed like their world was coming to an end. But you know what we see when we read the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, for those of you that are old enough to remember him, you know what the rest of the story is that, that we're, we're privy to? As we read Acts 8, and Acts 9, and Acts 10, and Acts 11, you know, you know what was going on there with that persecution? God was working, and part of his work was getting the apostles out of Jerusalem to go spread the news everywhere else so that other people could be saved too. We see that. We see that God was working. We see that God was causing these things, all things, even that terrible thing, that persecution, to work together for good so that more people would hear. You remember Peter and John went down to Samaria, and they preached in many villages of the Samaritans on the way home. You will recall from Acts chapter 11, how those who had been scattered because of the persecution preached the word everywhere they went. That God was working through that. And he was getting the word out there about this awesome salvation, so much so that the Bible says they turned the world upside down with their preaching. In about 30 short years, Paul writes in Colossians 1.23 that they had spread the gospel to every creature, every nation under heaven. They wouldn't have done that. I don't think if the church hadn't been persecuted because the apostles were pretty, pretty locked down there in Jerusalem as we read in Acts 8 in verse 4. Here's another thought. I've used Romans 8, 28 a lot because I love that passage. I need that passage. We talk about it a lot. But even though we use it and quote on it and quote it and rely on it a lot in our lives and our daily difficulties, have you ever stopped to think about the context and the circumstances surrounding the people to whom the epistle to Romans was written, including Romans 8.28 at the time? Have you ever stopped to think about the actual problems that those people were experiencing to whom this was written? Consider with me for a moment. <laughs> you know, people often complain today about how bad the government is, how awful and terrible the government is. What about the government over those Christians to whom Romans 8.28 was actually written? About 10 to 12 years prior to Romans being written by the Apostle Paul, the government, quote unquote, had stretched out their hand to harass some from the church and had the Apostle James, the brother 
of the Apostle John murdered in order to please the masses, Acts 12, 1 through 3. That's how bad their government was. About 10 to 12 years prior to Romans being written. You know what that made James? Do you know what that made James? It made him the first apostle to cross the finish line and enter into paradise. That's what made him. Anybody here argue with that? Raise your hand and I'll talk to you later. Anybody argue with that? Made, made, made John, uh, James rather, the first apostle to cross the finish line and be delivered to paradise. And we know that in all things, God causes them to work together for good. Within that same decade, prior to Romans being written, the government kicked all the Jews out of Rome, including Priscilla and Aquila, as we see in Acts 18, 1 through 3. Kicked them out. How about the government kicking all Christians out of the U.S. or out of Oklahoma? That, that's, that's what happened. Kicks them out of Rome. Which enabled them to have a relationship with the Apostle Paul, to work together, to stay together, and it even allowed them to come to love and be so close to Paul that they risked their very lives for him. Romans 16, 3 through 5. Turn with me to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. I want you to look for just a minute at the immediate context. I want you to look at the sufferings that are indicated in this chapter. This, this chapter in which we find Romans 8.28 placed right smack dab, right in the middle, right in the middle of, of this terrible, terrible conflict. We can, we can see some of the conflict in the context. Romans 8, look at me in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, and that's all wonderful and awesome, but don't miss the rest of the sentence. If indeed we suffer with him. There was suffering going on for these Christians. Look in verses 26 and 7 of Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. These, you, ever, you ever had those times where you're just so sick and tired of, of something, or you're just so overwhelmed with something, you don't know what to pray? I, you ever done that? I, I've done that. I've been, I just, I, God, I don't know what to pray. I'm just, I'm so over, I, I, I don't know, I don't know. Paul says, it's times like that, Christians, Romans 8. Apparently they were struggling with some things, heavy duty. He said, spirit intercedes for us. And, and we would move on, of course, down further in Romans 8. Verse 35, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, all these things that were, that were so pressing. He says, as it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. According to secular history, we are also informed that within the next 10 to 12 years after Romans was written, including chapter 8 and verse 28, that the Apostle Paul was beheaded. 
Secular history would also seem to indicate to us that Priscilla and Aquila were also sent home to victory by the same pagan government. No matter where we look in scripture, even in the darkest and most desperate of times, and, and really, especially then, even, even when those involved really can't see what God is doing necessarily, they can't see God at work in those dark times, we, if we look back and we look hard enough and we look far enough, we can see God doing something awesome in their lives. God's there, and, and that's the lesson that we so desperately, desperately need to understand. The providence of God, hard at work, in all situations, working for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. Paul goes on to later write in that same epistle to the Romans in chapter 15, these two verses. I want you to listen to verses 4 and 13. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patient and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it awesome to read the scriptures and to, to come to understand these things and, and to see the truth of Romans 8.28 and not only to have God say it, but to see it worked out in the lives of so many? Is that encouraging? That's encouraging, and I'll tell you what. I desperately, even though I know it, needed to be reminded of this this morning. You know, once in a while I'll have somebody say to me after a sermon, were you preaching to somebody in particular? Were you targeting, some, were you aiming at somebody with that? May I say in all due honesty this morning, absolutely. And I'm the guy I was aiming at. I'll tell you why. This whole coronavirus thing is driving me crazy. It is one of the most depressing, disheartening, and demoralizing things I have ever seen in my life. I miss my brethren. I'm grateful that there's so many of you here this morning, but to some brethren I haven't seen for months. You know, when we come over here, there was just so much singing and, and joy and, and worship and activities on Sunday afternoons and tri-states and, and all of these things, and, and they're just, they're gone. And it's killing me. I miss my brethren so much now that don't misunderstand what I'm saying I understand for those of you that are home that have health issues those of you who are part of that vulnerable population I understand why you have to do and and keep doing it you have to do this you don't have a choice I get that 
still miss you. We miss our brethren, don't we? Am I the only one that's where I am? Because if I am, I'll just stop and do an invitation. I miss my brethren. You ever seen those old Western movies where they don't actually show it, but the, the idea is there. You know what being drawn and quartered is? You know, they take the really bad guy instead of hanging him, and they tie one hand to a horse, and the other hand to a horse, and one leg to a horse, and one leg to a horse, and they'd be like in four points, they'd all say go at the same time, basically tear the guy apart, that's what the idea is. Being drawn and quartered. Sometimes it feels like, and I'm not one to go on feelings, but sometimes it feels like the body of Christ is being drawn and quartered by this coronavirus thing. So it's like we're being ripped apart. We're, we're, we can't be in each other's homes as much because of this thing. We can't worship all in the same place because, it's, again, don't get me wrong. Let's say it a second time. I understand it's got to be this way. I, I understand that. I'm not pleading with people to come back. Don't put your life in danger. Don't do it. I'm just being honest. This social distancing thing is turning into a spiritual distancing thing in some of our relationships. I think, you know, some people that we didn't know all that well that we were just getting to know when we come over, feel those relationships, haven't seen them for months. You can't maintain that kind of a relationship as strongly as it once was. We're still brethren in Christ, but we're not sharing that sweet fellowship. We're not able to do those things, and, and it's just stretching, and, and it may sever some of these relationships. And I gotta tell you, there's a growing concern from everything that I have read not from everything I've read, but from some things I've read. There's a growing concern amongst leaders in the church, elders, preachers, all over the place, just members, that when we finally get to the point where we can all be together again, whenever that is, whenever this thing is, is taken care of and put behind us, however that's gonna happen, vaccine or whatever, there's a growing concern that some of our brethren are not gonna recover not from the coronavirus itself, but from staying home. It's a growing concern. Well, I haven't been in church for a year, and here I still am, so. And there's a lot of leaders that are afraid there are gonna be casualties due to the coronavirus, even though they don't have the coronavirus. So I needed this lesson this morning, because I'm telling you right now, you know what I know? You know what I know? I know that God causes all things to work together for good, and I am hanging on to that. I know that even in the darkness of this thing, and even in the frustration and the depression of this thing, I have a God, a God that I can see in the scriptures, and that gives me comfort and hope because I can see in the life of Joseph and I can see in so many places and I can see when Jesus was on that cross. I can see when times were the darkest and people were depressed and frustrated that God, as long as they hung on to him, God worked through it and God brought them through better off than they were in the beginning. Don't we have an awesome God? I don't know everything God's doing, but I know he's working it all out together for good because I know I can see that in the Bible. I think that we all need to be reminded that just like Job and Joseph and the first century disciples of the Lord, or anybody else who loves God, we must, we must all continue, whether we're at home, whether we're here, that we must all continue to understand 
and to set our mind fully on the fact that no matter how depressing, no matter how desperate any situation seems to be, including this one, that we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. God is always at work deep within the darkest valleys to bring about good for his people. Isn't that an awesome promise? I need that promise. And I know it's true. And I, define, I defy COVID-19 or anything else. Take that promise away from me. Back in the fall of 2013, I believe it was, I received an email. And the title was, the top 10 predictions for 2014 that are all true. I've taken that and I have adapted it this morning and I want to share with you before we close. I've adapted it as follows. Because it's not about 2014, obviously. I'll start with part of its commentary. With all the problems the world is facing, it can be unsettling to the mind. Today I share with you the top 10 predictions. Now they said for 2014, but this is how I changed it. Today I share with you the top 10 predictions for the remainder of the COVID pandemic and beyond, and they are all absolutely true. Number one, the Bible still does and always will have all the answers. Number two, prayer still is and always will be the most powerful thing on earth. Number three, God still does and always will honor the praises of his people. Number four, the Holy Spirit will always assist with our prayers and help produce God's fruit in our lives. Number five, and again, this is for the remainder of the COVID pandemic and beyond. Number five, there still is and always will be God-breathed biblical preaching. Number seven, six, there still is and always will be the sweet singing of praises to God. Now number seven, God still does and will always continue to pour out his blessings upon his people. Praise God. Number eight, there still is and always will be plenty of room at the foot of the cross. Number nine, Jesus still does and always will love Number 10, Jesus still does and always will save the lost and sustain the saved who come to him in loving, faithful belief and obedience no matter what they're going through. Isn't it great to remember who's really in control, church? Isn't it awesome? to remember that the word of the Lord endures forever. First Peter 1 and verse 25. And it is because of that very word that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That will stand forever. What an incredible God we have the privilege. What a providential God we have the privilege 
of serving, of knowing, of following, and of watching work in our lives, no matter how defeating some of our circumstances may make us feel. To watch him work all things out for our good, for he himself has said, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. That is the God that Joseph and Asaph and David and Solomon and Jeremiah and the apostles and so many others hung on to. A God who caused all things to work together for their good even when the times looked really, really bad. Do you know him? I didn't say do you know of him, I said do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him in a spiritually intimate sense? So spiritually intimate that you have become his child. Do you know him as your Lord, your God, your creator, your redeemer, and your father? Have you had your sins washed away in the waters of Christian baptism to become his child, Galatians 3, 26 and 7? I tell you what, if you haven't, you don't know what you're missing. Amen, church? You have that opportunity right now, or if there's anybody here who has been struggling with anything or at home, all we need to know is that you need our prayers, and we'll be glad to pray for you, with you, study with you, anything we can do. But know this. Know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What an awesome God and what a promise to take with you. This morning, if you have a need, will you come to the front as we stand and as we sing?